You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Listen, are you listening? Those are Frank McCourt's words to his classes of New York City's high school and college students over a 30-year career in teaching. This is Catherine Petricelli, and today I'll be speaking with Frank McCourt about his latest memoir, Teacher Man. Mr. McCourt is perhaps best known as the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Angela's Ashes about his childhood in Ireland. In Teacher Man, Mr. McCourt is again a storyteller, but this time we also get to hear the reactions of a very particular audience, his mainly high school students, whom he brings to life in all their brilliant successes, failings, and teenage angst. I'd like to welcome you, Frank McCourt. Thank you, Kathy. Where were these stories before they were in this book? Were they in <laughs> your head? Did you tell That's your friends? Where did they exist? I, I saw they floating around in, in, in the atmosphere somewhere. But when, <laughs> I, when I started teaching the kids to divert me from any lesson I might be planning, we start asking me questions about my life. They're very clever. You, they, they size you up and they... They have way, they have their own devious ways of getting you away from what you might call English grammar. Though in my case, there was no danger because I hardly knew any grammar. <laughs> but they'd ask me questions about my life, and I, and they, in a sense, they um, they led me back into my life. I started to, about into my life growing up in Ireland, and I mm. would tell them. You know, I resisted it. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be a, a storytelling teacher. I wanted to, you know, be a tough grammar teacher, punctuation, spelling, and so on. But I, uh, I started telling the stories. But then, I, the, then uh, as we went along, I learned how to combine the two, how to use my life as a framework for teaching something else. Mm. And what about the students' stories that you include? Because their voices are so clear. Yeah. You just let them reveal themselves. Yeah, that's what you do. That, that, that's what I found. My, I, w- I was more comfortable with it, or, or, and, and they were comfortable to it. You have to t- attain some kind of a comfort level in, when, when you teach or, 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 or dunk a, base, a basketball or whatever you do. You, you have to attain that. Then, because I don't think any kind of writing or art comes from stress. Uh, if you do, it's you, you see it. I think the great ease is what Michelangelo had and Da Vinci and Picasso and the rest of them, mm. and Frank McCord. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, before we get too far, I just wanted to invite you to go ahead and read a passage from Teacher Man, and this uh, we will hear the voice of one yeah. of your community college students. Well, this is from my experience as a, as a teacher in a community college where they, they were adults and I never had any problems with discipline or anything like that. But there were always there were other problems. And uh, I realized you have to get up there, man, and teach. And I tell them a footnote, ladies and gentlemen, is what you put at the bottom of the page to show the source of your information, a hand. Yes, Mr. Fernandez, how come? How come what? I mean, if I'm writing about the New York Giants, why can't I just say I read it in the Daily News? Why? Because, Mr. Fernandez, this is a research paper, and by that, that means you have to show exactly, exactly, Mr. Fernandez, where you got your information. Well, I don't know, Professor. I mean, that seems like a lot of trouble. I'm just writing this paper about the Giants and why they're having a losing season. I mean, I'm not training to be a lawyer or nothing. Mr. Thomas Fernandez was 29. 
He worked as a mechanic for New York City. He hoped an associate degree would help him get a promotion. He had a wife and three children, and sometimes in class he fell asleep. When he snored, the other students would look at me to see what I was going to do about it. I touched his shoulder and suggested he take a break outside. He said, okay, left the room and did not return that night. He missed class the following week, and when he returned, said, no, he wasn't sick. He was over in New Jersey at the football game, the Giants, you know. He had to see the Giants when they were at home. Couldn't miss his Giants. He said it was too bad this class was on Monday, same night as the game, when the Giants were home. Too bad, Mr. Fernandez? Yeah, like, you know, I can't be in two places at one time. But, Mr. Fernandez, this is college. This course is required. Yes, says Mr. Fernandez. I understand your problem, Professor. My problem? My problem, Mr. Fernandez? Yeah, well, like, you know, you, you have to do something about me and the Giants, right? No, it's not that, Mr. Fernandez. It's just if you don't attend class, you're going to fail. He stares at me, as if trying to understand why I'm talking in this strange way. He tells me and the class how he's followed the Giants all his life, and he's not going to desert them now that they're having a losing season. Who'd respect him? His seven-year-old son would despise him, even his wife, who never cared about the Giants. She'd lose respect for him. Why, Mr. Fernandez? That's easy to see, Professor. All these Sundays and Mondays I spent in the Giants, she waits home for me, takes care of the kids and everything. Even forgives me the time of her mother's funeral when I couldn't go because the Giants were in the playoffs, man. So now, if I was to give up the Giants, she'd say, what was it all for, me waiting and waiting? She'd say it was all wasted. That's how she'd lose respect because there's one thing about my wife. She sticks to her guns the way I stick to the Giants. Know what I mean? Rowena from Barbados says she thinks this discussion is a waste of class time. And why doesn't he grow up? Why didn't he take this class on another night beside Monday? Because the other classes were full. And I heard Mr. McCourt was a nice guy that wouldn't mind if I went to a football game after working all day. You know, Rowena from Barbados says she doesn't know. Shit, I get off the pot, man. Excuse the language. She came here after a hard day's work, too, and we don't snore in class and run off to football games. We should have a vote. Heads nod around the room. Yes to the vote. 33 say Mr. Fernandez should attend class. No Giants. Mr. Fernandez votes for himself. Giants all the way. Even though the Giants are on television that evening, he's gracious enough to stay till the end of the class. He shakes my hand and assures me he has no hard feelings, that I'm really a nice guy, but we all have our blind spots. <laughs> <laughs> just beautiful. <laughs> it, it's hard. It's it just, I think it illustrates how hard sometimes it is to get through to people, that you have this obsession, and, but you're, and you're, you're also juggling your time and trying to go to college and improve your life, but that, that's an obsession as great as cocaine or anything else. Hmm. Hmm. Well, the personalities really just rip through this book. It's wonderful. Um, I, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about the political and the social context that you were teaching in, in the, yeah. I guess, 70s late, and eight, yeah. yeah, very yeah, late eight, 50s, yeah. I guess you started in oh, the yeah, 60s, yeah, 70s. Yeah. You know, this was a time, obviously, not that far from McCarthy's Red Square, Red right, Scare. Right, yeah, right. Uh, we've got the wars. We kids drop yeah. out, and we can lose them to war, yeah. which happened. Yeah, they came home in body bags. Um, 
and and still and still happens and there was also that the 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 ethnic struggles within your classes mm. and within New York City happening um the Italians and the Irish just the beginning yeah um tell me a little bit about sort of that outside context well i i was never I was never prepared, prepared for this. I grew up in Ireland, one nation, one people, you know, one white people. There was, I had no inclination. I knew there were slaves. I knew there was a civil war in America. And I came here. I didn't know that you'd be, you'd be hyphenated all the time. Oh, you're Irish-American, you're Italian-American, you're Jewish-American, all that stuff. And then I, nobody, nobody in, when we were taking courses at New York University on so, so-called courses, nobody told us about the, the, uh, this this a trap that we might be getting into. So then it began to erupt. Around the same time, um, West Side Story came out, the movie, the play and mm. had been on Broadway. Then the movie came out, and that gave me an inkling of what it was like. Oh, they, although they were never very specific in West Side Story about which ethnic groups were involved. We knew, we knew on one side there was a, a white guy, and we knew on the other side there were Latino. That's all we knew. And then, um, then uh, we you, we used to read uh, West Side. I mean, uh, Romeo and Juliet. But then there were gang wars, and that at that time, and, and we, although they were beginning to peter out when I became a teacher, there were gang wars that had nothing to do with drugs. It was turf. It was territory. It was Prospect Park or Central Park. It was Irish versus Italians, and it was Irish versus Italians uh, combining, joined together to fight the blacks and the Puerto Ricans and everybody else. And it was bloody. It was it was brutal. And the cops had to have special task forces to deal with the gangs. Uh, policemen were trained to go out and talk on the streets and talk to the gangs. I mean, you have the same thing now in, in Los Angeles, the Crips and the mm-hmm. Bloods and the rest of it. And all of that does seep into the classroom yeah. if you let it, and yeah. you let it. I mean, you yeah. you you embraced. I I think I can say. I mean, certainly not the blood and the war, mm. but you saw people for who they were, and you saw what they had to deal yeah. with. Well, I I had a, I had an idea about education. It was very dim. I I didn't have any big uh, principles or education or philosophy or anything. I didn't know anything, but I had this idea that I should bring the world into the classroom. And not and not treated as a, se- a place separate from life. But John John Dewey said once that s- school is not a preparation for life; it is life. And that was although I hadn't read John Dewey then, I didn't know he'd said that. But then that that's the feeling I had. I didn't want that. I didn't want the uh, uh, you know the ivory tower in in a vocational high school. So I would ask the kids about themselves, and they they slowly would begin to open up about their streets and the gangs and their families and everything else. And there was a lot of stuff in the air at that time because so many of their fathers had been, had been in World War II, had come back shattered, bitter, because they came back. A lot of them couldn't get decent jobs. Um, you know, the, they were working on the docks. and the, All of that stuff was going on. But it, 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 in a way, it benefited me because I had, I had worked on the docks myself. And I had met some of their fathers. I didn't know they were, I was going to be teaching their kids. And the kids knew this, so that gave me, what would you call it, validity. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I know that there was a, a bit of that um, struggle to, uh, to want to be educated, but then, you know, as someone said, you know, you don't need paragraphs in an auto body shop. No, yeah, no, you don't. Uh, and the parents, too, the parents on on 
conference night. Um, his father uh, read newspapers. Yeah, right. Right. He took a year of college. Yeah, yeah. It's this sort of defense That's, of. Yeah, but there, there was kind of timidity there, a fear of what you might, uh, I don't know, authority if I were. Yes, I did represent authority. I represented the principal in the school and the city and the president and God in general. I, I represented all of that. And a lot of the people came in there. They were not high school graduates. Some of them had never attended high school. A lot of them were immigrants. So I had to deal with all of that. I didn't know at that time that th these were particular problems, but I felt I had a kind of uh, empathy for them. And I think th they knew that I was from someplace else, although I'd been born in America, but I was raised in Ireland. And all of that was going on, and, and it was, there was a lot of stress and tension and fear. And the kids were uncertain and ashamed of their parents. That was the saddest part of it. And I knew how that felt, too about having parents who were not educated. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because at the end of the book, uh, you're working in a high school of very bright, mm. academic, college-bound yeah. students. And yet, when it comes to that conference night, yeah. the parents and the families, they're still kind of crazy. And, you know, the, 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 the lives, the home lives are still very complex yeah. and often tragic. And do you think that part part of it is that teachers get to look harder than other people? That yeah, that yeah. some of that other stuff, that, that well, frontage stuff falls uh, away? As an English teacher, you're going to learn a lot, especially if you have the kids writing. Eventually, they're going to open up. They might become confessional or autobiographical. So you, I learned a lot, a lot about their family. You know, you, you take some of it with a grain of salt. But on, on an open school night, for instance, parents conference night, whatever you want to call it, they'd come in, and in Stuyvesant High School, maybe over 50% of the kids had divorced parents. So you'd get two sets of parents. Right. The, the this is the academic-bound yeah, school. Yeah. The father with his, with his new wife and the, and, and the wife with her new husband. And they, they, they'd say nasty things about each other. <laughs> they'd come up at different times in the evening. So you had to, you had to, you had to try to, uh, a, very, a very careful cautious court and and also you had to remember to be very careful about saying anything negative about the kids to the parents because uh, it, it, when they went home in Stuyvesant High School their high you know the uh, college graduate college bound kids they would get they, they'd get all kinds of uh, uh, trouble and grief in the other school the first school I was in McKee you if you said something negative about the kid and if the, sometimes the kid was sitting there with his parents, the father might turn around and haul off and belt him. Mm -hmm. And that was bad because then you lost the confidence and the trust of the kids. So I said, I, I soft-pedaled it a lot. I lied a lot about the kids because I didn't want to get them into trouble. Mm -hmm. If I got them into trouble, I was getting myself into trouble. Mm. So you save your behind. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking today with Frank McCourt about his new memoir, Teacher Man. Yeah, I, I can certainly relate um, that there are no innocuous subjects no. as well in the <laughs> room. <laughs> I, you know, and, and you have a wonderful um, passage in the book. Uh, you, you use, I guess I'll, I'll call it a device, you know, sometimes when the students would drift a little and you start to engage them in a conversation about, you know, what they had for dinner last night and yeah, who served yeah. it and what. It, yeah. And we, this, this picture unfolds of one young boy who is eating at a high mahogany table under yeah, a chandelier yeah. being served yeah. veal medallions by the maid. And then we see mm -hmm. him and he's alone, it comes yeah. out, while his father is dying in the in, hospital. In, yeah. um, I, I, I taught uh, 
English as a second language to uh, Brazilians and Argentinians and brought up the topic of sports and got onto yeah. soccer. And yes, there are no innocuous subjects. <laughs> but um, what do you do with those personal issues? I know, I mean, you struggle with it on the page in yeah. the book. You struggle with, with it and, and sort of reveal to us at the time that, you know, it was certainly a dilemma. In the end, what did you do with it and were you satisfied? Oh, you're never satisfied. You go mm -hmm. home at the end of the day. Sometimes you say, God, that was a good lesson, and you want to give pat yourself on the back. Uh, uh, but th there's al it's always incomplete. That's the thing about teaching. If you're a doctor, you go in, you perform an operation. That's complete. You just take out the tumor or, or, or whatever it is. Uh, if you're a lawyer, you win or lose a case, or, and, and so on. If you're a newspaper reporter, you, you write your piece and it's published. But at the end, at the end of a teaching day, you don't know you don't know what you've done for them or to them. You only know what has happened to you. Hmm. You only know how you feel and how you and and you're scanning the whole day. You're scanning your whole teaching pr uh, process, and you you know there's, there's there's always room for improvement. And that's how it was for me. And the main thing, it, it's, it's partly is concern for the kids. You want them to learn more. But it's partly it's concern for yourself because you have to survive the next day. And you go from day to day and year to year. And you keep learning along the way. That's the thing about it. But it's an awful long lesson. It's an awful long learning process. And at the end of the 30 years, you wonder, what the hell was that all about? Mm -hmm. Because you still don't know. Although I go around now on, on book tours and I meet former students everywhere. And... They're all positive. They're all flattering. Maybe the negative ones are too shy or, or, or too sensitive to come up and tell me that I was hopeless. Oh. <laughs> what about other teachers? What kind of reactions to the book? Anything surprising? I, I think teachers around the country and in Europe are delighted that this, that this book is out because you seldom, seldom, ever, ever, never see teachers on talk shows. Until you never see them on in the morning with these various NBC, ABC, CBA. You, you never see them. You never see them anywhere. If they make a movie about teachers, it's ridiculous. You never see them teaching. They're always doing something else, chasing down kids or having love affairs and the rest of it. So I, what I wanted to write this book to, to get inside teaching. And I still think a lot needs to be said about teaching. Mm -hmm. you, you can't, it's hard to think of the movies down through the years. The first one I remember was Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And then when I started teaching was uh, uh, To Serve With Love with Sidney Poitier. And then the one that scared the hell out of me, the, the, um, the Blackboard Jungle with Glenn Ford where it, in, a, in, a, in a vocational high school in the Bronx. I saw that and said, what the hell am I getting into? But then, uh, and of course, in those movies, the teacher only has one class. I don't know if you remember a movie uh, which was made about a, about a Los Angeles school where the teacher suddenly decides, uh, and he, all his students are Mexican, he suddenly decides they're all going to study calculus. I think it was called Stand By Me or something like that. Okay. I'm going to, he said, and he said, he, got, he was frustrated. He said, you're going to study calculus. What do you mean? We're gonna, you're going to study calculus. And he worked on them and worked on them and worked on them. And they were, they were able to get high, high uh, scores on the college entrance examinations. The scores were so high that the college entrance people came out and investigated the kids. They couldn't believe that these Mexicans could master calculus. And, and, and the teacher said, I forget his name now. The, the, the actor, almost, 
Edmundo Olmos or yeah, something like I, that? I, you know, I, I have to tell you I'm not a movie person, yeah. so unfortunately I'm well, not of much you'll help. Have, you'll have a listener who will supply you with this answer. <laughs> uh, uh, and he said to him, look, you come from a, you come from a, a people of mathema- mathematics. Look what they built, the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Incas. And yeah, he, it, it was trying to get in, in, infuse a sense of pride. Mm-hmm. That but doesn't say much about teaching. No, it does. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's that you you can if when you become passionate about something, mm. it brings energy into the classroom, and the kids are convinced you mean it. You're not just going through a routine like a lot of people. Well, let me put you on the spot. <laughs> How would you define teacher? Well, somebody somebody has a certain body of knowledge and wants to impart it. And what, what, and, and to, that sounds uh, that sounds so simple, and yet it, it's, when it's you're going simple. home with the kids' problems well, and your I know, but somebody, somebody, a young student teacher asked me once, would I give her any advice? And I said, you, you find what you love and do it. That's that's what it boils down to. You, you, you in the classroom, in the classroom, or anywhere, find what you love in life and do it. Otherwise, you're dead. Uh, Thoreau said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Well. Who wants to lead a life of quiet desperation? <laughs> and if you don't find what you love at the end of your college days, 21 or 22, well, then go off and search. Go on, go off and, on, on, your, on your search for the meaning of your own life or what you want to do. Don't settle for a desk job or anything like that. Some people say, oh, well, teaching is a great, it is a great life. It's a, it's a it successful. You, you're, do, you're dealing with the most significant ingredients in a society. The kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. And during those 30 years, though, uh, at what point did you know that that this is catching? I'm going to keep doing this. Or or was it sort of year well, by year uh, yeah, struggling? Yeah, you're step by step. Right? You make little discoveries along the way. You make little, and, and, and you, oh, is it, oh, yeah, I can use this again. You might be reading a magazine or a newspaper scene. I'll use that tomorrow. Or something might happen in the classroom. When, when, I, when I asked the kids out of the blue one day, well, what did you do on Saturday mornings? Because I wanted to learn about their lives. Their but lives would, you say, would you say your love is writing? Yeah, but teaching. Okay. But I think, I think I, I, sometimes I say, what, ha, what, what would it be, have been like if you hadn't become a teacher? Just go off, get a job as a busboy or a waiter, work a few hours a day and then spend the rest of your time writing but I didn't know anything I was ill-educated I didn't know anything about life so it took all these years all those classroom discussions with the kids to to mature me in mm, a way. Mm, and mm. then after the 30 years I was ready I think to put pen to paper hmm. what percentage would you say of your time when you started teaching were spent on on those stories that you told the kids and that you were honing Less and less. As the Hmm. the years, they they would ask me about my life and I would tell them a few stories and so on. But I'd get more and more into their lives and I'd have them talk and and have them write. And and then they'd get up in class and and read the stuff to the class. You say near the close of the book uh, this about you and your students. What we have in common is urgency. Hmm. Can you comment on that? Yeah. Well, you know, 
teenagers are very urgent. They're explosive because their hormones have started raging and they're pulled this way and they're pulled that way. There's new feelings of uh, psychological, sexual feelings and so on. And they're always hungry. All of this stuff is going on. And they're thinking about high school and how to pass and how they have to maybe go to college and the rest of it and their relationship with their parents are changing. And, and all of this has to be dealt with now. And I, I felt the same way myself. That I didn't want to let days slip by because I was, in, I was, I was in, I was at the best part of my teaching career was becoming middle aged in my forties, and that's a, an explosive combination to have in the same room, somebody who's going through the change of life as I was. I guess women experience it more, but I'm going through the change of life, and the kids are going through a change as teenagers. So I felt that I felt that urgency, and I. I knew that eventually I was going to write something, mm. and mm. I wanted them to write. And so, and then I, I would despair because they were they were writing, and some of them were brilliant, and some of them were getting published. Because I was insisting that they send their stuff out to magazines and newspapers, and they were, and they they'd come in with the published book, published articles, and I'm there, and I said, "What am I? What am I?" Get? They used to say to me, "So when are you going to write a book, Mister McCourt?" And that used to that used to paralyze me. Mm. Hmm. What did your students convince you of over those 30 years? Generally, uh, they wanted the truth. They wanted, they wanted honesty. That was the big thing. They're lied to so much. There's so much falsehood around. Uh, you know, you, if you don't do this and you don't do that, you won't get a good job and blah, blah, blah. And nobody will go out with you and all of this stuff. It's all lies. Uh, and, and they're never encouraged to be true to themselves or to express themselves honestly. If, if a kid says, so why do, we, why do we have to study algebra? The teacher says, because it's in the curriculum and that's it. And, you, and you're going to, well, that's not a satisfactory answer. That, that could be the opening for a brilliant discussion on what algebra is all about. Mm. If a teacher is, is scholarly enough, they can go right back into, uh, into, into a, a Euclid and, and, and way beyond that. You began your career with uh, the vocational high school and ended it with the academic high mm. school. If those times and schools and experiences were reversed, what would, what would that have brought? Or what, what kind of successes or other successes would it have brought? Uh, well, to, to start teaching at Stuyvesant, which was the top of the heap, the best high school in the city and so on, I don't know if I'd be, have been able to handle it. It would, have ta- it would have taken me a while to, to start dealing with the in- intelligence of, of those kids. And if, if I had gone on, I, if I wound up in McKee Vocational High School, I wouldn't have been able to handle it at all. Because in, in Stuyvesant High School, the kids come in, they sat down, they were ready to learn. And there were no discipline problems. No, no, no pe- people were not throwing things at each other the way they were, the way they were in McKee. So that wouldn't have worked at all. I would have mm. probably left teaching. So things are perfect as they as yeah, they are. Yeah, I had the, I, you know, my life is my life is ridiculously uh, blissful in a way because uh, I did my thirty years and it was hard, and then I then I retire and write a book and I get a Pulitzer Prize and all that kind of stuff and I get I'm, I'm on television with Katie and. <laughs> and, and and Conan and the rest of them and people look at me. Oh, you're you oh yeah, you're the guy. You're the guy that wrote the book when I was a teacher. Nobody paid me a scrap of attention. <laughs> <laughs> and and tell me, how did your how did your mom see your teaching career? There's a just such a magnificent passage in the book, uh, uh, when you're leaving Ireland. Yeah. 
uh, and your mom is taking you through the pawn shops to yeah. get a suitcase yeah. and yeah. suit of clothes and just a fabulous dialogue yeah. there. She, she, well, she, I, I don't think she could understand. There's like the, a lot of the parents that I was talking about who come into the school and never went. To, she, she, she finished school in fourth grade in Ireland. So she really, she, I suppose she was proud of me. But she didn't understand what I was doing. It was easier for her for her to understand my other brothers, who all be, who all became bartenders, and she liked going there and sitting up at the counter and having a a whiskey sour or something. She didn't know what I was doing every day. Mm, mm-hmm. But I think she was she was she would go back to Ireland and brag that Frankie was a teacher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's in the shoot? What what? What other wonderful things do we have to look forward to? Well, I have a children's book coming out next year, well, a year from now, uh, uh, um, a, a Christmas story. Uh, and then, then I'm working, a, working a, I should be home working on this novel. And what it's about, I don't know. It hasn't told me what it's about. But the characters are forming in my head, clamoring for attention. Mm. Instead of that, I'm driving around California. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad you are. Thank you very much. (laughs) Frank McCourt, thank you for being here. Thanks. Frank McCourt's new book is called Teacher Man. For KUSP, this is Catherine Petricelli. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.